Praise God. Um, it's good to see everyone today and to be seen by you. Um, God is very gracious to us. And um, what a privilege it is to be able to gather in the name of the Lord freely and to hear his word and to fellowship with one another without fear of persecution, um, hurt, harm, and danger. And so um, it's great that we exploit that freedom. And we do remember those who are around the globe who don't have that freedom. And um, our prayers are with them. Um, I know just as much as their prayers are for us, they pray for us for different reasons. They pray that we would rise from our lethargy and appreciate what we have more. <clears throat> um, and we also pray in the face of just ongoing um, tragedies around the world. Um, the latest hurricane that's touched land in the US, um, there was a, I'm not sure if it was mentioned earlier, there was an explosion um, last night in Ghana. In, uh, um, in Accra, and so we do pray um, concerning these things and for those people who are affected by them. And in light of these things, we're ever reminded that we have to work out our salvation. Um, those of us who are in Christ and know the Lord are mandated to work out our salvation, and not just to work out our salvation, but with a sense of fear and trembling. And so there's supposed to be deep reverence as we regard the Lord and what he has done for us and what he has done in us through Christ. And we're not to take it for granted or to overlook it or be casual about it, but we're supposed to be very conscientious and concerned about how we go about living our lives in order to please God. And so in that we recognize we have a sense of responsibility as to how we live out the gospel. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the gospel, focusing on the basics, focusing on the fact that the gospel is Christ. It's all about him, it's from him, and it's for him. And as we see ourselves in the place, in the picture of the gospel, we're able to appreciate that it's not about us, but about Christ. But what that looks like worked out in practice is another thing. What that looks like worked out on a day-to-day -day basis is another thing. And so, um, I had it on heart just to, sh to share today on the theme of culture, class, and Christianity. And... Um, Partly motivated by the fact that it's Black History Month and um, it's, a, it's a good time to exploit the opportunity to consider matters of cultural significance and particularly as it relates to black history. Um, I'm always someone who has said that black history ought not to be relegated to just one month in the year because it's our history, it's, our, it's everybody's history. Um, and so the experiences and contributions of a people um, are not divorced or separate from everyone's experience. And so there's so much for us to talk about and to learn from. So partly motivated by that, um, but more so motivated by the gospel. Motivated by the gospel. And when I think about the, the, the journey of the gospel in our life and times and how it's experienced by people, the objections that people often have to the gospel, especially from the community that I come from as a black man of Jamaican heritage, um, you know, views that are expressed very vocally <laughs> and very vehemently. Um, I recognize that the hope and the expectation of the gospel is something that needs to translate into reality not just for the benefit of those who are lost in order that they might not be hindered in coming to Christ, but also that the truth of the gospel might be truly reflected amongst the people of God. See, 
Paul said to Timothy that the church is the ground and pillar of the truth. So it's supposed to be the place where people can know they can come and get truth. It's the go-to spot for truth. And not just in theory, because we do theory well, right? You know, we reason over the scriptures and the theology and we talk and we talk and we this and we that. And then when it comes to living it out, when the rubber hits the road, when it comes to that which everybody is actually seeing, because they don't really hear our talk, but they see our walk, what does it look like? And the reality is that even in the history, more modern history of Christianity, we see that Christianity has not looked like what it says it is. And hence, in my titling, I've emphasized the Christ of Christianity. I wanted to stop at Christ, culture, class, and Christ. But there is a sense in which Christ must be outworked among us. He must be seen among us. And that's what Christianity is supposed to be. And so, let's consider some issues surrounding these things. And, you know, it's not going to be exhaustive. It's really, um, the endeavor is that we would see how the text addresses these issues. Rather than using the text as a springboard to try and... (laughs) speak into these issues. The Bible speaks to these things, praise be to God. And we ought to be encouraged. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7. We're looking at verses 17 to 24. And then I'll pray. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the practical application that it has to our lives today. We thank you that despite what we've seen, we know that you are God, that you are true, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever that your plans and purposes are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And we are to look to you and aspire to your holy hope and to your expectation. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you have harmonized the differences culturally, ethnically, even in terms of class etc. Lord, you've harmonized all these differences in you. We regard it as true when it is said, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come before you on the same level, in need of your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in and through our lives, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's funny because as I just quoted that phrase, the ground at the foot of the cross is level, um, it it connected with the forum that we have coming up in a couple of weeks' time, in a few weeks' time, which we're called The Level. (laughs) And 
it wasn't actually named with that intention in mind, with that connection in mind. But I think it's a, it's a helpful reference at this point as we consider these issues. Because truly, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's even. Nobody is any closer to Christ by reason of their, their ground being a little bit higher than the person next to them. No one is any lower because they've got a ditch where they're kneeling. But as we come before Christ, as we come before the cross, we are all level. And what is that? We're all equally sinners. We're all equally guilty. And yet, the unfortunate thing is that so often we can accept that on a personal level, but when it comes to our corporate identity, our cultural identity, even people who would have some kind of sense of um, class distinction, that reality is removed from our minds. So I know that I'm a sinner, but my culture is really the one that is the better culture that people ought to, um, you know, really subscribe to and participate in as the way to live life. Or, or these people who are uneducated and poor, they really need to be like us who have money and education in order to truly experience life the way it's meant to be. I once tweeted, Jesus didn't die to make us middle class. <laughs> and somebody actually responded, so what did he die for then? <laughs> Jesus didn't die to make us middle class. I remember hearing Pastor Eric Mason in Philadelphia at Epiphany Fellowship there. He was, you know, if you've ever listened to him, I'd definitely recommend you um, log in and, and, and catch some of his sermons. He's a blessed, blessed man of God who really brings it. And sometimes he gets, gets in the zone and he goes on a rant. <laughs> a righteous rant. I feel like a comrade right there. And he was just on a rant this day and he was just like, you know, I just can't take it when, you know, we have these Christians who come to the hood and they think like, they're bringing the gospel to the hood for the first time like there was never any gospel in the hood before they came. As if they're riding in on their white horse, you know, bringing salvation to the community as if there was none here before. Like, you know what? We, we, we may not have been eloquent in our articulation of our theology bearing in mind that we were kept out of your Bible colleges because of the color of our skin. But nonetheless, we knew Jesus. We knew the gospel. And yet, this isn't just a, a class thing. It's something that affects every culture. And you know, the great gift of the gospel is that we have been made one with the Lord, we have been brought into right relationship with Jesus and as a result are now best placed to have harmonious relationships with one another. <coughs> there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus has done, made one new people from all people. It's a bit like the um, Jamaican national slogan, which is, anybody know it? Out of many, one people. Yeah. And... Um, out of many, Christ has made one people. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And yet, people have looked at this verse and have actually understood it to be something else. 
Because what they've done is they've looked at this verse and said, actually, you are all one, meaning you are all the same. You are all the same. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all the same in Christ Jesus. And that has led to a very unfortunate point of view and attitude within the experience of the church, especially in recent times. And when I say recent times, over the last few hundred years. Because as a result, what is being meant by you're all the same is the fact that actually your culture and your background and your ethnicity and your life experience is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Because we're now all the same. And implicitly what tends to happen is people in the majority culture will then expect that what that means is everybody looks like the majority culture. I spoke last um, week, I touched on the issue of cultural sacredism, where people take aspects of their culture and use it as the definition of holiness. So this is how you pray. And for some people, it's marching. And if you're not praying and marching and warring, then you're not really serious. You're not really spiritual. You're not really connected with God. For some people, in their tradition, it's um, pew, pew cushions and kneeling and solemn reflective prayer. And that's true godly prayer. And anything less than that is irreverent and improper and cannot be pleasing to God. There are so many things. I know in my experience, there was a, you know, the whole thing about appearance. So, even in those places where we were welcome to come as we are, jeans and trainers, whatever, it's wonderful, come as you are. And we really felt that sense of welcome until <laughs> you hit the glass ceiling. What glass ceiling is that? That's the one that separates the pew from the pulpit. And so, you're as long as you're in the pews, come as you are, it doesn't matter, it's all good. But if you're going to step up to share from the front, you better come correct. It, it reminds me of those scenes in factories that I used to see um, on, on films and so on. And you know, you'd have all the factory workers in their overalls, but you, you knew who the foreman or manager was. Because he would have on, maybe he might have on overalls, but he's got a shirt and tie underneath. And all of a sudden, that kind of distinguishes him as, well, he's a, a cut above the rest. And so then you get that in church. It's okay for you to share, but as long as you conform to our cultural expectations. Because nobody could ever show me how the scripture justified that. I was blessed on, um, yesterday morning. Bertram shared about when he and Missy first came to the church. <laughs> brother, I'm going to put it out there because it, just, it just blessed my soul, brother. It blessed my soul. He and Missy first came to the church and, you know, came from a, a, a traditional um, environment where they were used to dressing up for church. Yeah? Am, am I right, bro? And so the first they came, they heard about the church on the radio, and they came along, and we were, at, we were at Goldsmiths College at the time. We were meeting there, and they turned up on their first day, and they were suited and booted and everything, and dressed for church. And oh, the disappointment. <laughs> the deflation. They see me up there in a cap. I had a stud in my ear at the time. Bertram's looking at Missy like... Are these, are these people actually serious? <laughs> Missy's, Missy's looking at Bertram. Where have you brought me to? Have we come to the right place? <laughs> but he's still here today. 
<laughs> yes, praise be to God. Because Bertram testified that it was the word of God that held them here. And so we all have our little expectations as to what is proper, often very culturally informed. Some of us, in our own ways, are really quite guilty of snobbery. Now, I use that term not just in the sense of somebody who's well-to-do looking down their nose at somebody who's not well-to-do in a, in a kind of um, social status, earning power, and, and you know that type of sense. But we've all come with baggage that we bring to the table, which at various times can cause us to look down at others. But why? This, this verse doesn't mean that we're all the same. And let's think about it for a moment. Neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> one of the writers of the New Testament commentary series, um, R. Alan Cole, said this. It is also important to realize that for Paul, the difference between men and women has not been obliterated, even in Christ, any more than the difference between Jew and Greek has been. So, this isn't Paul preaching gender neutral. It doesn't matter what you call yourself, if you're male or you're female, or if you're male but you want to be female, or if you're female and you want to be a male. That's not what Paul is saying. Just as much as he's not saying that you need to lose your cultural distinction and identity. But what changes is the attitude to each other. So that their relationship has been radically altered. So because of Christ, we're able to regard each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord, regardless of our background, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our culture, regardless of our preferences. We don't lose our culture. We don't lose our uh, ethnic distinctions. We don't lose our gender distinctions. But they are no longer hindrances and barriers to relationship. And primarily in a salvific or primarily as it relates to salvation. So if you understand the picture of the Old Testament um, temple system and how the temple had various spaces and they would have the court of the Gentiles and so the Gentiles could come in the temple but only as far as that court. They couldn't go any further and you had the court of women and the women could go as far as that court but they couldn't go any further and you had the Levites who could go into the inner court but they couldn't go any further and you had the priests who could go further beyond, and then you had the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies. Basically, that whole system of categorization, as far as it relates to approaching God, has been removed. So everyone has free access to relationship with God through Christ Jesus. So when Jesus was crucified, and the veil, which they say was a 60-foot tall piece of material that was, was at least as thick as a carpet, if not thicker. This veil was torn in two. This is the veil that separated the, the, the holy place or the inner, the inner court from the holy of holies. Torn in two from top to bottom. The hand of God tore it in two, signifying that the way to God is now open and all can come freely through Jesus Christ. So regardless 
of how it's portrayed in some places, women don't need a mediator in order to come to Christ, in order to come to God and have relationship. Jesus is the only go-between, the only mediator between God and men. And so we can't suggest that, well, now that we're Christians, we just have this kind of universal Christian culture that, that everybody's the same, and we all like the same food, and we all dress the same way, and we all speak the same way, and do things the same way, and even think the same way. The reality is that the, the misinterpretation and application of Galatians 3.28, along with the text that we're looking at today, has been a means by which people have used to oppress those of other cultures. And they've used it to oppress them in such a way that they would not only cause them to conform to their version of Christianity, but also use it beyond that to control their very lives as slaves. So historians recognize that looking at our verses in 1 Corinthians 7, historically, there have been those who have looked at these verses and used it to support their view of race and class segregation and categorization. So during the colonization or the, the colonialization movement of the 17th and 18th centuries, we see this distinction being introduced into society, um, particularly in the US, but also in the UK, because at that point we shared a common history. So bear in mind that it was in, what, 16-something that people sailed from the UK on the Mayflower to settle in the US. Yeah. It was British people who colonized the USA. And so we, share, we have a shared history in that regard. And a, a lot of the ideas found their origin in the UK, and even as they developed in the US, from the US, they found their way back to the UK and influenced life in the UK. And so this whole notion of categorizing people according to color was something that was introduced during that period. The first people to experience, um, and this is what some historians say, the first people to experience that kind of categorization and oppression were actually the Irish. And so, by reason of Britain's relationship um, and England's relationship to Ireland, there were attempts to bring the Irish people into what they called indentured servitude. And the Irish people weren't having it. And then the, the, the British people began to look at the Irish people as savages because they couldn't be controlled. And so they were blacklisted. <laughs> we then see as colonization began to, 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 to set in, a similar type of attitude was taken towards Indian people. And then also African people. And so in this, there was a mindset, a developing mindset that was being promoted in order to bring people under submission, to subjugate them, in order to be able to have these people fulfill their desire and wish to be um, industrially productive in order to make money for Britain and the USA. 
So what they'd done was they would use scripture to, to legitimize their concern. They would use scripture to legitimize their plight. And also using the same scripture, not only to justify themselves. Yeah, well, you know, we're doing God's work. Because look what it says. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. So these people have been allotted this path in life. They have been assigned this way of living. This is their lot and their portion. They are less than us. And God has caused us to be superior and them to be inferior. And they are to serve us. And so know your place. Yeah? I mean, this, this is, this is a, a, a very deep issue. And there's so much more to be said than you know, what I'm sharing with you. I'm giving you a summary. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Don't get above your station. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. See, God is with you there in your oppression and, and your oppressed state and your servitude in your slavery. God is with you there, but just don't think that you ought to seek to change your situation or think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And so this is how the scriptures were abused to oppress people. Now, the deep thing is, this scripture speaks completely the opposite. If we read and understand it properly, we recognize that this scripture speaks completely the opposite. And yet, it adds to the Issues that people have with Christianity because of the way these and other scriptures have actually been used to control and manipulate others, to enslave others, to justify the barbaric treatment of others. Now, let's also have a balanced perspective because there were many in the same season of life from all cultures and backgrounds and many Christians who spoke against the enslaving of peoples and the oppressions of and the oppression of peoples especially using scriptures such as this as their justification there were many who spoke against it who protested against it even from among the peers of the majority culture who were guilty of doing so and so even among them, God had his people who would speak on his behalf. Even people that looked like them and sounded like them in order to bring conviction to their hearts and souls. But as the scripture tells us in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all evil. And the trade that was being carried out and the finance that was being made from this cheap slash free labor was, was, it was too much to actually turn away from. And so it was, it was about the money. It was about the profit. And so then what happened was, there was a point at which they said, look, we're not concerned with the human rights of these individuals who are, who are enslaved by us, because actually, possession is nine-tenths of the law. And they are our property. And so as our property, the law favors us over their human rights. Because the law speaks more to our rights 
as owners. Bearing in mind, these people were um, what they call chattel. They were the possession of their masters. And so they tried to use the law to justify themselves in continuing to further the enslaving of peoples and the exploitation of their labor for financial gain. Now let's just think for a minute as we look at this text. Because as we see these verses, we can see how they can be easily abused to, to influence, to even coerce a person who themselves may not have the scriptures in their own language, who may not have the, the literacy to actually read for themselves context. It's easy for these scriptures to be taken out of context and be used in a way that I've suggested to keep people in their place. Until you look at context. And we see someone like Nat Turner, who as a slave, and yet one who was a Christian, whose life was submitted to Christ, and who was also literate and able to read, he was... He reached a point of conflict in his life because he was being urged by his owners to go to different plantations and use the scriptures to quash any kind of sense of protest and uprising. And yet as he began to read the scriptures, he realized that actually these scriptures speak more to the masters than they do to the slaves. So let's consider, how do these verses in, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24, how do they really speak to us concerning culture and class? Now, the first thing we have to note is, 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't start in verse 17. And as we look at verse 1, we see this. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, you're probably thinking, wow, that's a leap. <laughs> How did we get from slavery to sex? Here's the point. They had written to the Apostle Paul asking a question as to what is proper for Christians to do. So the Corinthians were coming from a background that was heavily influenced by Gnosticism. And in their worldview, spiritual was good, physical was bad. And so some of them said, well, that means that you shouldn't interact or enjoy any kind of phys physical pleasures because it takes away from your spirituality. So you shouldn't be having sex, even if you're married. That's the... <laughs> That's the worldview they had. Messed up, right? So you know why they had to ask Paul to clarify. <laughs> Others, on the other hand, were just like, well, look, if spiritual is good and physical is bad, then whatever we do with the physical doesn't matter as long as we're pers pursuing spiritual ascendance and enlightenment. So you can do whatever you want. So most people know the 1 Corinthians 7 to kind of be the, the, the chapter that talks on sex and marriage. And we have this section kind of nestled right in the middle that seems almost random, almost off topic, because even after verse 24, he goes back in to talk about betrothal and, you know, how a man should come to get together with a woman and da 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 But it's completely consistent with the line of thought because what he's addressing is what is proper for a Christian? People have these different views as to what is proper for a Christian. And you're only a proper Christian if you do it proper. That was intentional, by the way, because I know some of you are saying that should be properly, Pastor E. <laughs> so Paul's saying, look, 
It is proper for a Christian to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what he says. It is good for a man not, not, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman unless they're married. That's what he goes on to say. So you can't do whatever you want and say you're a Christian. There are contexts within which you are to function in a sexual manner, which are God-given and given for that purpose. So it doesn't mean that even if you're married, you cannot have sex. Because that's not the view of God. That's just your worldview leaking into your thinking. But it's okay under these circumstances. It's proper under these circumstances. And so then in our verses, he takes opportunity to clarify culture and class. Because likewise, there was this sense of, well, if you're going to be a proper Christian, then surely maybe you should be observing Jewish culture. Should you be getting circumcised in order to be a proper Christian? I mean, we have the Old Testament and we hear of Moses and now we're in Christ. How do we relate to that? Should we be keeping all of that? And they're working through all of these issues. And he's saying to them, look, if you're circumcised, you don't have to try and remove the marks of circumcision. And if you're uncircumcised, you don't have to seek circumcision. Neither of them, they're not important as it relates to being a Christian, being a true Christian. Now, in that, he affirms that the whole Jewish way of life was nothing more than a cultural norm and not a religious requirement. He didn't tell them to stop being Jewish. Those who were already Jewish and circumcised. He didn't say, now you need to put away your Jewishness in order to be a proper Christian. Like, keep your culture. But know that that's all it is. It has no religious value, says the Lord to us. You could keep your culture, but know that it has no religious value. So, I've had a few messages lately, and I've had ongoing conversations with members of my family who are really hard on this um, Nubian Hebrew, Hebrew Israelite kind of thinking. Some of you have probably seen, um, you know, little videos and memes and so on going around saying that the true Jews were black people. The, the Akanazi Jews or and they, they, were, they were black people. And I get these messages and I got one the other day from a relative. Simply, what do you think? And I'm like, what difference does it make? It may be true, but I want to know what, how does it make you see Jesus differently? Does it change the things he taught? Does it change his doctrine? Does it change, it, does it change his deity? Does it, how does it, what difference does it make? And so people are looking to find some kind of status or sense of Religious superiority, because that's really what it is. We're the true Jews, you see? We're the ones who are the, 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 the source and origin of, yeah, you should be, we're all sinners. <laughs> Look at this, this is what Paul said about the Jews, right? And this kind of, for me, just puts it into perspective. Paul says in Romans 9, 1 to 3, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For if, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, speaking of Jews. Paul was a Jew, but he lamented at the plight of the Jews because 
They were those, he goes on to say in verse 4, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Like they've got a history of relationship with God, but they still reject Christ. In fact, actually, there's a greater accountability there. Because they've got history. So my thing is, okay, so you want to say as a black person, you're the true Hebrew, true Israelite. Think about what that means for a moment. That means that from your heritage, you're supposed to have a greater appreciation and understanding of God's revelation of himself and how it relates to Jesus. So what do you say about Jesus? Greater accountability. If you're claiming that heritage all of a sudden. So rather than it being an advantage, they better mind sharp that it's not a burden. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So Paul's not playing about. He knows the plight of his people. He who recognizes himself as a Jew is like, hold on. I wish that I could cut off in order that they might be brought in, that they might be able to see that Christ is the Messiah, spoken of in the, uh, according to the prophets relayed through the scriptures, their own scriptures. So it all comes back down to Jesus. Whether it's true or not, what difference does it make? We're still all confronted with Christ and our need for him. Amen? So being an Ashkenazi Jew doesn't make you any more religiously superior or more highly rated in the eyes of God than you were before you realized that. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I don't know how that works, but... Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Why? For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but the, the keeping of the commandments of God. So we keep God's word. Don't impose on me your cultural expectations. Bring me the Bible. I'm submitted to the, the Lord. And... I'm not even saying, let's not have a conversation. I'm open to a conversation. But don't expect me to submit to you just because it's what everybody does. Or that's what you view to be proper. Look at this. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Understand this properly. This isn't know your place, as in hold your corner speak when you're spoken to, don't get out of turn. But this is, understand that you are who you are. This is where God has you, and it's for a purpose. Because there's no one that can reach your community, there's no one that can reach your culture, there's no one that can reach your class like you can. So just be calm, it's, you're all right there. You're good there. God's got you right there, and he's going to use you right there. So, we see him deal with the issue of culture there. Because that's what circumcision represents, just a cultural distinctive. It has no religious value. Likewise, we see him deal with class. Where you were slave when called. So, Slavery, at least in Bible terms, was much more related to what we understand to be called um, indentured servitude. 
So people either fell into slavery because of um, crimes that they were um, having to recompense for and, and, and resolve or debts that they couldn't afford to pay. Some people actually gave themselves into slavery because they were so poor and unable to look after themselves. And even being a slave meant that they would have some kind of consistency of provision and protection as an individual. And so people found themselves in, in slavery for these different and varied reasons. Often slavery could be regarded as more parallel to what we might consider an employment contract today than what we understand to be the transatlantic slave trade and the kidnapping of individuals against their will. Now, I'm not telling you to go and read your contract and um, <laughs> look for the slavery clause in there, but people recognize that there is a different kind of freedom when you're your own boss. Were you a slave when called? Were you considered underclass, less than, low status, low ranking? Don't be concerned about it. But if you get, can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So again, it's not this poverty mentality. Well, you know what? The Lord favors the lowly and the oppressed, and so I'm just going to stay a slave because Jesus is near to me in my slavery. And even though I have the opportunity to kind of step up and move forward in life and have freedom and have some self-responsibility and ownership, no, I'm not going to take that because... And, you know, even in life, we can have people kind of give that sense of, oh, I see that you've got a new car, as if it's unholy, <laughs> as if it's ungodly. Hmm, Mercedes, hmm. Does it... And all of a sudden you feel like your godliness is under scrutiny because you had a tax break and you didn't want to give it to the tax man and so you just bought a new car and you could. Do you get what I'm saying? And so the reality is that it, it works always. As much as we may look down on people and say, oh, you know, they, they look so shabby and uncouth. No decorum. How could they be representing the Lord looking like that? It works the other way as well. Look, they're so flash. And just money, money, money. So ungodly. As the scripture says, For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Listen, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And so you could be in prison. Oh man, I remember this really awkward moment. We was doing prison ministry and we were in, um, I can't remember the name of the prison. It was a woman's prison. And we were in there with, we would go in and do music, myself and Pastor Rob. And um, we were just waiting for our turn to do our few songs. And there was a group that was sharing before us, a, a, a singing group. And I remember... Um, um, one of the ladies in the group was, was sharing and she said, and she said something like, yeah, and I mean, the fact that Jesus would die for you, because I know that I wouldn't die for you. If, and I kind of understood what she was trying to say, but it just didn't come out right. And you know that moment when it's kind of like that awkward silence when, I remember we're in, in a jailhouse, we're in prison. These people don't pet. And I'm thinking to myself, oh no, it's about to get absolutely horrible in here. Because there was just that awkward moment when you could see on the looks of the faces of the inmates, they were kind of thinking, what is she trying to say? Is Margot actually trying to diss us? And then she tried to dig her way out and she kind of, you know, helped herself a bit. And then we kept it moving and I was just like, no, we got to understand that. You know what? It doesn't matter what condition of life a person is in. We're all sinners. Christ died for sinners. And that was an expression of God's love towards man. They're still made in his image and likeness. It doesn't matter what crime they've committed. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. And it's an amazing thing when you can see an inmate who's even on death row. 
and just have peace and have a sense of joy. It, it defies rationale and so it doesn't make sense. When they can say, you know what? You know, I've done wrong and, and I'm going to die and I accept that. And there's no clamoring for avoiding the consequence and so on because they know they're free in Christ Jesus and they know that they will be with him and yet the person who is free when called to relationship with Christ is a slave of Christ we're bond slaves of Jesus Christ we are bound to him to do his will and so Paul says you were bought with a price do not become slaves of men If you live for people's approval, you will die by it. If you live to meet other people's expectations, you are giving them power over you. And this is what Paul's saying. Don't feel you need to conform to other people's expectations in order to fulfill what is true Christianity. Love Jesus. You're his. He bought you. They don't own you. They don't owe you. You are the Lord's. So don't be enslaved to opinion. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. And so know that, you know what, whatever condition of life, whatever situation you were found in when the Lord saved you, you do not have to change your social status. You do not have to change your cultural identity in order to be truly expressing what is proper and right in terms of relationship with God. The Lord is with you right there. Remain with God. And so we see how it's so much more of an abuse when these scriptures have been used to oppress people and have them conform to this full standard of right, full standard of righteousness. And yet the word of God is life. And it is as we appreciate and understand this, and as we have an innate commitment to live this, which is an open-hearted acceptance for all people, without expecting them to conform to our sensibilities, but actually delighting in the diversity, not just expecting assimilation, but actually delighting in diversity, and humbly, first and foremost, recognizing we're all created in the image of God. And, it, you know, we, we talked about creation, rebellion, redemption, and new creation. It, it doesn't get away from that. Creation, we're all created in the image of God. Even the people that don't look like me, that don't sound like me, the people that I don't understand, I don't like their food, created in the image of God. They are people of value. And yet, we're all rebels. And there is no culture that is better or no class that is better than another because all is corrupted by sin. And if it's true individually, it's true corporately. And yet, Christ came to redeem all. That all might be one in him. And we see at the end in the new creation this wonderful picture of the people of God from every tribe and tongue, from every nation and peoples, gathered together before the throne of the Lamb, singing the praise of God. In the book, um, Crossing Cultures in Scripture, um, the head of the Overseas Mission Fellowship, um, wrote the, the foreword, and he said, we need to understand the cultures of other peoples. 
See, often in our ignorance and sense of superiority, we're not even prepared to get to know someone and, and humbly understand what we don't understand and get to know and understand their culture and how they think and what makes them tick and what's important to them. And we need to understand the cultures of other peoples so that we can present the truth of Christ in ways that respect their culture even as they challenge underlying cultural values when necessary. So we don't start with the assumption that their culture is sinful. But then when we come across those things that are contrary to scripture, we present them with the word and say, how do you work this out in your culture? It's not even that we turn around and we say to them, see, your culture is sinful. Look what the word says, because we don't understand their culture. Give them the word and ask the question, how do you work this out in your culture? What does this look like for you? And allow them in submission to Christ and empowered by the spirit to apply the word to their culture. <clears throat> and so I'm going to ask the team to join me. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Jamaicans, Ghanaians, Nigerians, Sierra Leoneans, Congolese. Yeah, you know everybody's been doing this kind of ancestry thing, right? Um, we found that we've got Congolese in our heritage, you know, like a big... <laughs> and Ghanaian, by the way, yeah, Ghanaian. What can I say? You can't lie with the DNA. <laughs> you could be Greek, Turkish, Hungarian, Irish, amen, brother, Canadian. We're one in Christ. One but not the same. We're one in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. Amen. Let's stand. <laughs> Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you have achieved in Christ what could not be achieved. Lord, we recognize that at the coming of your spirit, there were people from all nations and tongues um, around the known world gathered. And um, they were gathered to seek you. And yet even so, they heard the message of the gospel in their own languages. And we saw you overcome the barrier and the hurdle of culture and even class and transcend the individual identities to provide a new identity in you. We thank you, Lord, that we have a true sense of identity in you. And Lord, we thank you for bringing understanding and insight in ways that would heal those things that have gone forward as abuses in the past, Lord, and how your name has been abused. And Lord, we, we recognize that you alone could achieve that. There are so many efforts to bring social and cultural unity which at some point or another tend to come up short and fall down. And yet, Lord, you bring true unity, one that does not deny distinction, but embraces and celebrates it. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to be a people who reflect that in our lives and in our, in our interacting with one another and interacting with the lost, that we would reflect that 
loving embrace for all people. You said, Lord, let your house be a house of prayer for all nations. All are welcome to come and connect with you. Help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.